So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would use it in our hearts and minds. I pray for all of those watching right now, uh, even though they're in homes all over Rock Hill, that you would uh, knit their souls and their hearts and their minds together and give them a sense of community as we do this online service today, uh, and that you would use Second Corinthians this morning as we talk about reconciliation, uh, as we consider the great reconciliation that's happened with you, that it can extend to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So Lord, use your text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, as I said, we're in First Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I'm going to go through chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. And we're going to see some guidelines for reconciliation. But I'm going to read the whole text, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, going through 2, 4. If you're able to, I'd love for you to stand as, in honor of God's Word as we, as we read it together. Uh, if you can't, that's fine. After I read it, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. I'm, I'm going to be listening to make sure that you say it. So starting in chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come to you back from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy, um, and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call to God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming, to, um, coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy and for, and for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one in whom I have pain? As I... And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who would make me rejoice. For For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all, pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. All right, so uh, we are in 2 Corinthians, as I said, and I just want to give you a little bit of uh, a repeat of the intro that we did last week, just so you can kind of understand if you missed last week what's going on. But uh, 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that Paul wrote. Um, And as 
one commentator says, 2 Corinthians is the most personally revealing of all of Paul's letters. Um, and this is the fourth letter, as I said, of correspondence with Corinth. With Corinth. First letter, non-canonical. Um, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Uh, and it was written to them to confront the problems that they had uh, after Paul had planted the church. And then the second letter, which is, what, which is our 1 Corinthians, um, while on his third missionary journey, he heard about even more problems going on in Corinth. Uh, so he wrote a letter to them and uh, addressing all of his concerns in chapters 1 through 6. And then the second part of the letter in 7 through 13, they had questions that they had asked him and he answers all their questions. Letter 3, also non-canonical, non-existent uh, at this day, is known as the severe letter. He mentions it right here, as we saw in chapter 2. Um, and so uh, this severe letter, it, it's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 3, and I wrote as I did. Uh, that's called the severe letter. And when Paul had visited them, um, he had <clears throat> seen that there were some problems, and he had wrote this severe letter, basically... Le- Letting them know of the things that were going on that weren't, good, that weren't good. Some people had gone there. They had openly defied and insulted Paul. And so because of this, he wrote the severe letter. Letting them know that they need to repent of these things that were going on. And later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we hear that T- Titus came to Paul and said that his letter had done some good work. And the people there, some of the people there had, had repented. And then actually here, 2 Corinthians is the last letter we have. Paul wrote this in AD 56 from Macedonia. Uh, and Paul, uh, he was wise enough to know that not all the Corinthians had repented. And so there were false apostles there. And he was preparing to go to Corinth to visit them. And in preparation to go visit them, he wrote 2 Corinthians and sent it ahead uh, to try to ease the discomfort between the two of them. Uh, because he knew that there needed to be some, some further reconciliation. And so he wrote this letter, giving them some instruction uh, on his generosity, defending his apostolic position, because the false teachers had uh, come in and, and said that that wasn't the case, that he wasn't an apostle. And that's what the reconciliation is mainly about, because Paul had delayed his coming. And he's also wanting to let them know he's taking up a collection uh, to give to the poor believers back in Jerusalem. And he's wanted to con- confront those apostles head on, the letter of 2 Corinthians. So those are all the kind of things that's going on here. And so this letter, the, the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is really kind of three big sections. And we're still in the big section uh, of, of the first one, which is chapters 1 through 7, where Paul's reconciling with the Corinthians and defending his position of, of being an apostle. That's all in chapters 1 through 7, and we're still in that. Chapters 8 and 9 is about largely about generosity. And then chapters 10 through 13 is the final challenge that Paul gives in preparation for his visit. And just to remind you a little bit about Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a very favorable geographic city where, where it was located on a peninsula, had a lot of financial advantage over most cities around it, uh, but was very, very sinful. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, of, of all the cities in, in Greece, um, it was very large and commercial uh, but with all this prosperity, they literally coined the verb to Corinthianize, which is meant to actually commit sexual morality. To, to do the verb Corinthianize was that. So uh, that's everything that's kind of going on here when Paul's entering in. We looked at last week where Paul did the, the introduction of comfort. We talked about all the levels of comfort because 
they had offended Paul. They had, they had done him wrong. And as they had done him wrong, he knows that he's going to have to confront all this. And so he, he lets them know how comfort works and how the Lord is doing it. Now, as we move into this next section, Paul's going to talk about reconciliation. And so uh, one, chapter 112 all the way through 2.4 gives us actually a model for reconciliation, uh, four guidelines for reconciliation. If, if there's ever some somebody you know where you need to reconcile with them, chapter 1, verse 12 through 2-4 gives us four, not like, not like necessarily details, but in big picture, four kind of big picture guidelines for reconciliation. The things I need to be thinking about, have you ever had a disagreement with someone so severe that you needed to reconcile? Of course you have, because we're all human. Um, but as you had that disagreement or that situation occurred, and it likely uh, fractured the relationship in some way. Afterwards, what, what, was, what was your disposition? Were you left sad, um, likely so, perhaps even depressed? Were you wondering what went wrong? Were you wondering what were your missteps or what, what, ha- what happened? But even largely, you're, you might be wondering, how can the relationship even be repaired? How can it be repaired? That's what this text is letting us know. It's it's giving us four kind of big picture guidelines on how to do reconciliation so that relationships can be repaired. And you're wondering, can it happen? It can happen because the Lord can do all things. And this text gives us goals, big picture guidelines when we're seeking to do reconciliation with fellow believers. It's, it's a model for reconciliation. In, in the guideline, it'll tell us why we do reconciliation, how we do reconciliation, what are the goals of reconciliation, um, and what is the goal during reconciliation. Not just the goal of reconciliation, but even the goal during reconciliation. So uh, four guidelines for Paul's visit uh, and, and the reconciliation with the Corinthians is what we're going to be looking at. We should state also at the outset something. So um, in most uh, disagreements, in most broken relationships, generally both parties have offended each other. Both of them have done something. And a third party, if a third party mediator were to come and survey the whole situation, the mediator, generally if he's or she is objective, they could find fault in both people and say, both parties have done something wrong and here's how we can see a reconciliation. That's not what happened here. That's not what happened here. Uh, The offense is in one direction. The Corinthians had offended Paul. The Corinthians have done Paul wrong, and reconciliation needs to happen between the two of them, but it's all one direction. It's the Corinthians have offended Paul. And so this text outlines why Paul is explaining um, why he had not come and visit, visited them, uh, and the results that occurred from the situation, and their need to reconcile. But we should realize uh, most, most disagreements are kind of both directional, and this one was one. This was the Corinthians had offended Paul, and yet Paul is going to be the one to come to the Corinthians to give them comfort, as we saw in last week, and then do all he can to reconcile the situation. What does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus Christ. Our offense to Jesus is one direction. We have offended God, and what, yet has, he, what has he done? He has taken all the initiative to come and reconcile the relationship with us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Paul here, um, he's not the Messiah, he's not Jesus, but he is being Christ-like in reconciliation. He is the one that's taking the initiative, even though he has 
bore the full brunt of all the offense. He is the one that's taken the initiative to go and reconcile the relationship. It's the most Christ-like thing you can do to take the initiative to uh, reconcile a relationship. So as we get here, um, we're going to see these four guidelines. And usually I, uh, I give you the, the, the kind of the sermon point and then exposit the text and we see it together. I'm going to do the reverse today. I'm going to exposit the text and then I'm going to give you the sermon point. So uh, if we look at verse 12 through 14, that's our first little section that I want us to see. David Garland, a commentator, he writes that verses 12 through 14 actually in chapter 1 serve as the theme a little bit different. He wants the Corinthians to see what's in his heart. He wants them to know that eventually they're actually going to boast of each other. Look at verse 12, for our boast. And if you look at verse 14, uh, we will boast of you. You will boast of us. We will boast of you. So you've got boasting and 12 and 14 serving as bookends in verses 12 through 14. Uh, and so they're actually saying they're going to boast of each other on the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, so verse 12, for our boast, we're coming back, uh, is the testimony of our conscience. The testimony of our conscience. For our boast, now it's written there, you can see in the first person but plural. Written there in the first person but plural for our boast. Um, Paul shrinks down whenever he gets to verse 15 to first person singular. But in this little section, it is first person plural. Uh, The only conclusion we can make is that Paul's speaking of he and his traveling companions. You can see them there in verse 19, Silvanus. Timothy and Silas, that Silvanus is Silas. He's just using a different form of it. But that's Silas, Timothy, and I. And so he's speaking of our boast. He and his travel companions uh, is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now God has given every person a conscience. Not just Christians, but every person in the world has a conscience. And what is the conscience? Colin Cruz says, the conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God. So unbelievers have a conscience and they aren't necessarily hearing the voice of God because they don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Or the conscience should not even be uh, considered equated with the moral law. Rather, it is a human faculty, this is all Colin Cruz, a human faculty which adjudicates upon human action by the light of the highest standard a person perceives. And so it's just something within you that's supposed to help you judge whether what I'm doing right now is right or wrong. The conscience can be uh, really good or a conscience can be really bad. It can be super, super seared. Um, one other commentator says the conscience then therefore functions like a skylight, not a lamp. Um, it does not produce light. It merely lets moral light in. So if your conscience is good, it's, it's like a skylight letting moral light in. If it's bad, then it's not. At salvation, this is where it's good news. At salvation, God cleanses for Christians cleanses our conscience from its lifelong accumulation of guilt, shame, and self-contempt. So that's what the conscience dare. Therefore, Paul is claiming here, for our boast, this is the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you in verse 12. So Paul is claiming my conscience is absolutely clear in regard to the dispute with the Corinthians and the charges that they had against him that they are not true. So we can see 
Paul here is not the offense, the one who's done the offense. It's all one directional towards Paul. And Paul's saying that my conscience is totally clear. Now, we just need to take a side step for a second. Because the comment that I just read uh, is a gospel moment. And I want us to hear that. The commentator, I said, The conscience functions like a skylight, not a lamp. And it does not produce lights on its own, but merely lets moral light in. Then he says, At salvation, God cleanses the conscience from its lifelong accumulation of guilt, shame, and self-contempt. has nothing to do with Paul right now. I just wanted to stop and let that soothe your soul right now. Let the good news of the gospel uh, and just live in that truth right now. Think about that. God cleanses shame conscience at salvation from its lifelong accumulation of guilt and shame and self-contempt. It cleanses you from that. So are you wallowing right now from a lifetime of shame over your sin? Don't. The good news of the gospel, that gospel salve comes and says, wash clean. The cross of Jesus Christ proclaims to us, you are forgiven. Drop the chains of guilt. Release the shackles of shame. They are no longer on your shoulders anymore. You have no self-contempt for yourself anymore. That's what the good news of the gospel does at salvation. So I just wanted to speak to you personally and pastorally before we continue. Guilt, shame, self-contempt no longer have to be your name anymore. Drop those things. Those things are washed clean by the blood of Jesus at salvation. Amazing news what the Lord does to us. Back to the text. I just wanted to live in that gospel moment for a second. So let's keep going. Back to the text. Now Paul's claiming that his conscience is clear in regard to the dispute with the Corinthians and that the charges that they held against him are not to be held against them, that they're false charges. And the charges against Paul that the Corinthians had, the false charges, are, are, are threefold. They said that he was guilty of moral wrongdoing, that, that they were saying uh, Paul's suffering that he was receiving was God chastening him for a sin. You can see that in 12b. And later on in 6, they said that he had relational wrongdoing. Paul's saying that he is receiving suffering because he had defrauded, deceived, manipulated them. 1 Corinthians 13 Verse 13, 113, we're going to see why that's not true in just a second. Theological wrongdoing, they're saying that Paul is a false teacher because of these things. And so they had, they had made some major charges against Paul, but he says that that's not the case. These things are not true. Uh, he, he stands before God as an apostle. None of us are apostles. Apostle is someone, a contemporary of Jesus Christ in the first century. So there's no such thing as a contemporary apostle anymore. That's not true at all. We're saints. We might be pastors and elders, uh, we might be deacons, we might have some of these kind of titles in the New Testament, but we do not have apostle. The only people that are apostles are in the first century contemporaries of Jesus. And Paul, because of the road to Damascus, claims apostolic uh, title. But other title, he is using that and saying, based on the apostolic title, title that's been given to me. I'm telling you, I have a clear conscience before God. I have not done anything wrong. And then he talks about how this is our boast, that I have the testimony of the clear conscience. And one day, verse 14, you, on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. This, this boast is kachesis. You got you to get that second syllable with a lot of phlegm. Kachesis. It's the idea of boasting. And as I said, it frames or bookends verses 12 through 13 in these three verses. And then he presents his grounds of boasting and ends by expressing the hope that they realize well, they will all boast on the day of the Lord Jesus. And so um, this is the, uh, 
This is the idea that Paul's saying that's going to happen in verses 12 through 14. Now, of course, we need to make sure that we're thinking rightly because normally boasting uh, is, is bad. Normally it's thought of in a negative light. Whenever someone boasts, you know, they're a boaster, that's not good. Like, listen to this person boast, I'm going to get away from them. Uh, usually boasting can be sinful. You, and, the, and kind of the contrary thing is that we want to be humble instead. And so uh, this is not what, what Paul's saying, though. I don't think we need to think of it. That's not the proper way to understand what Paul's trying to get at in verses 12 through 14. In this context, it doesn't seem like the kind of boasting that Paul is talking about is sinful. You got to get some water. Instead, uh, it's different. What can be going on here? Let me say this. Knowing that what's going on here is the key to understanding these three verses. And since they are the, the, uh, the theme of the book, knowing what's going on here is likely the key to understanding 2 Corinthians. So what is this non-sinful boasting that helps us understand this text? Because it's, it's not sinful, and it is boasting. What is this non-sinful boasting that Paul talks about? Well, later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, he tells us this. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, this is shorthand for Paul. So Paul is actually quoting in 2 Corinthians ten seventeen. let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a shorthand pulling from the Old Testament and he just gives it to us in 2 Corinthians 10, 17. But that text is actually in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. The more lengthy text from Jeremiah 9, 20. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight in, declares the Lord. And so you don't boast in your own wisdom. You don't boast in your own strength. You don't boast in your own money. But instead, the one that boasts, as Paul says, boasts in the Lord, as Jeremiah says, boasts in this, that he understands the Lord and that he knows the Lord. And he knows that the Lord is who he says he is and that he knows that the Lord does these things like practice steadfast love, justice, righteousness in all of the earth. And so that's the key to understanding what Paul is talking about in verses 12 through 14. And so we should note three things regarding uh, the boasting that Paul does whenever he does it in verses 12 through 14. He does it as God is his witness, and as he says in verse 12. If Paul boasts, he deals with the Corinthians with sincerity and trustworthiness. And he also confesses that the virtues that he has uh, towards the Corinthians and the way that he's interacting them, as he says, with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, he's acted supremely so towards them. Uh, that he's writing these things, not that for we're not writing these things to any other for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand. So as he's writing all that and telling them what's going on, uh, he's writing it with trustworthiness. He's writing it and confessing that all of his virtues that he has re regarding holiness didn't come from himself. 
but they came from God. And so he's boasting that God is his witness. He's boasting that the holiness he has is not from himself, but from God alone. And he's also boasting not for personal advantage, but he's boasting for the Lord, as it says in verse 10, just as you did partially to us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you, but he's doing it on the day of the Lord Jesus. And so the only reason he stands there is because of Christ. And so the boasting that he has is on the day of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, it's for Jesus and for his glory. So the boasting that he's doing is not for his personal advantage. Instead, he's boasting in the Lord. He's boasting in them on the day of the Lord where it's all about Christ and the salvation that Christ has wrought in the hearts of Paul, in the heart of Paul and his companions and the Corinthian church. And so taking all this into consideration and knowing that the main idea of what's going on here is Paul's talking about how reconciliation needs to happen with the Corinthian church. This is what we can get out of verses 12 through 14. This is the first guideline regarding reconciliation. So think of your broken relationship. Think of whether you were the primary offender or they were the primary offender or you both were the primary offenders and you need to go reconcile. Here's the first big picture guideline that you need to have when you walk into that reconciliation. Number one, all reconciliations should be done for the glory of God, by the grace of God, and with godly sincerity. So walking into it, you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to reconcile? Because the glory of God demands it. It's for, I'm doing this for the glory of God. I'm not doing this primarily to make my relationship better. That, that's, that's a benefit, no doubt. I want to have this relationship better. But the main goal I'm going for here is the glory of God. That is why you should reconcile. Because God gets glory. The goal afterwards is that we would boast in the Lord for what he's done. Look, we have reconciled. Now God gets glory and I'm going to boast in the Lord that he has done this. As Paul says in verse 14, I will boast of you and, we, and you will boast of me. And that's saying we are boasting in the Lord as it says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Look what we've done. All glory be to God, not to us. We didn't do this. God did this. So the first goal, big picture guideline for reconciliation is always remember, you are doing this for the glory of God. That's the big first thing. Now, verse 15. Uh, Remember, all of this falls in the context of how the Corinthians had offended Paul and Paul's trying to reconcile with them. So verse 15. Uh, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Salvation squared, salvation times two. What what is the second experience of grace? Is this this, uh, some kind of new salvation that Paul's preaching in 2 Corinthians? No, it's not at all. Um, There's nothing in the entire New Testament that that talks about second waves of experiences of grace so the better idea is if you cannot uh, figure out if there's if is not other teachings in other places of the Bible that teach that kind of stuff, stay in the context and figure out what Paul's meaning. He's not building a new theology or a new soteriology, a new doctrine of salvation. Uh, he's probably talking about something in the text that would make it understand. So when you see uh, anything that says second experience of grace or third heaven or anything like that always stay in the context and if you can't figure it out then just say I don't know 
but we don't need to build new theologies here. So Paul's not building a new theology of a second wave of experience of grace or new salvific grace that believers receive once and then they get a second one later on or anything like that. Nothing controversial. As a matter of fact, the answer lies right in the next verse. It's not controversial at all, and it's really, really obvious. Uh, Verse 16, so I wanted to come to you so that you might have a second experience of grace. Verse 16, I wanted to, here it is, here it is, watch this. Watch this second visit kind of thing that he says he wants to have. I wanted to come to you on my way to Macedonia. So Paul's going to Macedonia, and I'm going to go through Corinth on the way to Macedonia. And when I go to Macedonia, after that, I'm going to come back to Corinth. That would be the second visit. You can see it in verse 16. I want to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and then come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. So he had a second uh, visit that he wanted to have. Now, wh- what's going on there? Likely, what's going on there is, as Gordon Fee says, he wanted, to have a double exp- he wanted them to have a double experience of grace by being able to send Paul along the way to Macedonia. And when they came here, have a double grace to be able to send them on the way to Judea. And the whole big picture is, Paul's co- we're going to see in Corinthians 8, 9, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul's collecting money from all of these cities that are really far away from Jerusalem so that he can take it to the poor believers in Jerusalem. And so he's given them an opportunity to have uh, a sending church to Macedonia with some money. And he, d- he collects there and he comes back there. And we're going to give you a second portion of money and send you on your way to, Jude- to Judea. That's what's going on. Really simple. Uh, nothing crazy salvifically here. Keep going. That's what Paul wanted to happen. Two graces of getting to be a sending church. Grace number one, send you to Macedonia. Grace number two, send you to Judea. Uh, But that's not what happened. Excuse me. That's not what happened. What did happen? Um, As we see, uh, as seen in verses 17 through 19, uh, Paul did not do this and someone blew it out of proportion. So, uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. I wanted to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. And then in verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? No. Vacillating is like, was I this way or that way? What was I wanting to do? Um, do I make my plans according to the flesh? Now, people were saying, Paul just makes his plans according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Paul doesn't really live in Christ when he thinks about what he's going to do for the Lord. He just, he's just willy-nilly walking around. And then he says, was I vacillating when I do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh and say yes, yes, and no, no? You might ask yourself, what does that mean? Why does it say yes, yes, no, no? In that time, if you really wanted to say you were telling the truth, you would say yes twice. Like yes and yes. And later on we see in the New Testament, like just say yes. If you're a Christian, your yes is your yes. You don't have to say it twice to make sure I'm really telling the truth. If I just do one, maybe I wasn't. Like, but that's just the the kind of colloquial language that they used back then to tell the truth, yes, yes, no, no, at the same time. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. So what he's saying there in 17 through 19, someone took what Paul's saying, I wanted to come to you and then go to Macedonia, and then after Macedonia come back to you, but that didn't happen. That's what Paul wanted to happen, but it didn't. Someone in Corinth was like, Paul didn't come here, so he makes all of his plans according to the flesh, and he starts trashing Paul and making him sound bad. But let's, let's understand, was that exactly Paul's plan? It was. Let's get the full measure. He's, he's giving us kind of an outline of what he wanted his plan to be, but he actually tells them exactly what his plan is. If you look at 1 Corinthians, so go like three pages to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Uh, verses 5 through 9, he actually lays out what his plan is. And watch what he says. 
For I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not uh, want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Oh, what does it say? If the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide open door for effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries. So Paul even outlines what his goal is in 1 Corinthians 16 in regard to travel. And he puts the little caveat, if the Lord permits. The Holy Spirit truly is leading Paul as he's going on. And it didn't happen. The Lord did not permit it. And the Corinthians, the false teachers in the Corinthian church, assumed that since Paul made this promise that he's going to come and he didn't do it exactly as Paul said, Paul's a liar, Paul's a false teacher, and they throw all and hurl all these accusations at Paul. And so this, they're seeing as Paul as someone who does not keep his word, and they recast his failure to the Corinthian church, these false teachers. They recast Paul's failure to be there to the Corinthian church as a big lie, and they say that Paul is the worst. And the way that we should understand anything that Paul says is always with the worst of intentions and the worst of motives. But whenever Paul says something, it's always wrong. One commentator says it this way. Here, here's how one commentator kind of, Capsulates the way Paul was treated. He says, The attack from the church came from within the church in the form of sin, mutiny, and misrepresentation led by some self appointed false teachers who sought to discredit Paul and destroy his reputation in the eyes of the Corinthian congregation. That's, that's real stuff. That really does happen. And so there was some kind of self-appointed false teacher that had risen in this church or teachers in this church. And all they wanted to do was discredit Pastor Paul and say, uh, let's destroy his reputation in the eyes of this church and say false things about him. And so Paul is trying to reconcile this relationship and saying, actually, that's not true. The things that they said are not true. I have a clear conscience before the Lord. The things that they said, I already told you back in 1 Corinthians 16, if the Lord permits, and it's not what's happening. And so Paul's restating that his plans were not mating according to the flesh. These accusations of false teachers are absolutely wrong. And Paul interrupts his explanation to help them know to to start to discuss the faithfulness of God. He says, if the Lord permits, and then he starts talking about the faithfulness of God. If you notice it there, um, read again, was a vacillating verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And he interrupts what he's saying and he does, he starts talking about the faithfulness of God. He does this for two reasons. One, he explains his own motives and his own actions and how they're within the character and faithfulness of God. I did not walk outside of the character of God when I said I was going to come if the Lord permits. I did not come, walk outside the kind of overarching Faithfulness of God where I'm supposed to pattern my life around? I didn't do that. He also does it to give his apostolic uh, proclamation more credence because he's in the will of God. He is an apostle. And he's, he's using that apostolic uh, title that he has to say the things that I'm saying are true to you. And I, what I'm doing is within the will of God. He's trying to help them see God is faithful. As surely as God is faithful, my word against this wrongdoer um, is faithful as well. And he's setting all of this and grounding all of this in the gospel. And he says the faithfulness of God's word is more clearly, one commentator says this, the faithfulness of God's word is more clearly manifested in the coming of a son. And so he's saying God is faithful 
And then after that, he starts talking about the good news of the gospel in verses 20 through 22. He tells us God is faithful. And then that's when Paul launches into this great gospel word, speaking of the faithfulness of God in verses 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Every promise of God that's ever been given to us finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Is what he's trying to say. God, Jesus is God's yes to Abraham that I will, from you, all the nations will be blessed through your seed. You can yes and amen in Jesus, Abraham. Jesus is God's yes and amen to David where he says, from your offspring, I will establish your throne forever. Yes and amen, David, right here in the person of Jesus. Over and over and over, all the prophecies. We could, we could read through them all. I don't have time. Uh, we don't have a second service, so let's get started. I'm just kidding. It's like we, could read, we could read through all of these prophecies over and over. And over and over, we would say, you see that person? And that says, yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And Paul's helping them see that. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ and amen, meaning surely. Like everything within my body and my soul screams out, surely that is true. Yes and amen in this. And so the implication is, is if they affirm the, the message of Christ that he is trustworthy, they should also affirm the messengers of Christ, Paul and his companions, as also being trustworthy. So he's interrupting what he's doing, talking about the faithfulness of God, talking about the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of God and saying, if God is true and we are his messengers, we are his apostles, then our word should also be held as true, not the false teachers. Not the false teachers. And so a good question then is in the middle of all this to stop and ask yourself, why mention God keeping his promises in the middle of defending his travel plans? What's he doing here? Why is he mentioning yes and amen to the promises of God while he's defending travel plans to a church that he needs to reconcile with? That's, that's a huge question I think that we all need to stop and ask. I know you're already thinking about it. So, Here's what I think is going on. Verse 21, where it says, um, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Because God has established Paul in the Corinthian church. This uh, with you in Christ, that, that in is actually into Christ. It's the same idea, but a um, little bit more emphasis. And so God has established us with you, notice the little language there, us, God has established us with you. So he's put us to into Christ. So why is Paul talking about the promises of God in the middle of defending his travel plans? Because Paul's wanting him to see the faithfulness of God in the gospel has connected all of us now as brothers and sisters. And because of that, he's established me and you together into Christ. So as I'm mentioning travel plans and why these false teachers are wrong. I want to remind you who we are in Christ. And so because he's done this, he's helping them see that God has established us together with you, Corinthian church, you saints who said these bad things about me, but we are brothers and sisters. And so we can reconcile because we are together in Christ. That's what he's trying to help them see. Meaning this, if there's a person in your life that you need to reconcile with, and especially this, if they are a Christian, it is absolutely possible that reconciliation can happen with them between us and God. The horizontal relationship with other believers in Christ can happen. 
if they're a Christian. Now, if they're not a Christian, it still can happen. But if they are a Christian, it definitely can and should happen. That's what Paul is trying to ha- say. That's what the, the point that he's trying to get to. And he uses uh, images on the path when we're walking through a text that we stop and smell the roses of the good news gospel like we did when we talked about conscience. Let's stop. We're, we're going to keep traveling down the road of reconciliation and guidelines. But anytime we come into a, uh, a good news gospel moment, we want to stop and just take all that good news and smell it up and say, yes, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. And we're going to do that again. We're going to smell some good news gospel here because there's three images of good news in verses 21 and 22. I just want to make sure that we get. These won't be on the screen, but these are just here. Watch this. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. Good news image number one. God is the one that establishes us in Christ. God takes the initiative for your salvation. For my salvation. Good news. Because we would never do it. Amen and hallelujah. That's the first image of the good news. God is the initiator of yours and my salvation. Number two. It is God who takes initiative or establishes us in Christ and has anointed us. Second image, good news image here. God is the one that has anointed us. Literally, that means God is the one who has taken us out of wretched sinful practices and said, you're mine. He takes the initiative and now sets us apart in Christ for his glory. Good news. You have literally been set apart, sanctified, and been, and been set by, said by God, you are now for me. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been declared holy and righteous. And now you're mine. You're not over here. You're over here with me now. Really good news. Anointed, set apart as God's. Third, third image of good news. You can see it. This is unbelievable, right? Verse 22. has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God is the one like an ancient king that would set his seal on those that were part of his. God has set his seal. You know, the signet ring set his seal. God has set his seal on us with the Holy Spirit. The, the, the guarantee word is the word Erebon. It's also in Ephesians chapter 1. And this Erebon, I've said this before uh, in the Daily Devos. Erebon is, uh, if you ever bought a house, and when you go buy a house, you have to give earnest money. You know, th- this earnest money is like, I promise you I'm going to buy this house. No matter what, I promise you. That, that Erebon is, an, is the word, like the word earnest. It says, God given you a guarantee by the Holy Spirit and say, here's my earnest money. He's called the Holy Spirit. I am guaranteeing you. I am promising you. I am going to buy this house or I am going to save this soul. You are, without a doubt, Erebond. You are guaranteed salvation. And I'm putting my seal in you with the Holy Spirit saying, no matter what, you're mine now. That's, that's unbelievable good news. So just stop and hear and feel all the senses and smells of the good news here. God took the initiative. God appointed you and God sealed you. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. I know y'all are saying amen. I can just type it out or something. Scream it so everybody in Rock Hill hears. That's good. So the point is that Paul is telling us all this good news to remind them, hey, Corinthians, It's especially possible when we've been given the Holy Spirit and he lives in you and he lives in me and along with Christ, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation coming in chapter five. I can't wait till we get there, Um, but we can't do that today. And so we can reconcile with each other as Christians. 
Guideline number two. What, got, second picture, guideline number two. As I said, we do it at the end. All Christian reconciliations are possible because of the gospel and the promised Holy Spirit within you. I probably shorthanded it, but that's the, that's the second thing. So remember this. Number one, when you do reconciliations, you do it for the glory of God. Number two, all reconciliations are possible because of the good news gospel that's happened to you in your heart and the promised Holy Spirit that's in you and them. So you're wondering, could it ever happen that I could reconcile with, with Billy Joe Bob or Kathy Joe Foote? Yes, it can. It absolutely can because of the good news gospel that's happened to you, because you have been established, anointed, and sealed. Yes, it can, especially with other believers, even maybe unbelievers, but especially with believers. Now, verse 23, Paul now starts answering the questions as to why he didn't come to Corinth. He said, um, he, he mentions his trip and he mentions why, what his plans were, but now he's going to tell them why. This is why I didn't come. This is why I didn't come. The Lord didn't permit it, and here's what happened. Paul now answers the question as to why he didn't come to court. The false teachers made their accusations. Paul is actually going to tell them the truth and why. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. Don't miss that, right? He's actually saying, if I'm not telling the truth, God will witness for me that I am. Think about that. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, witnesses for me. I call a witness. So-and-so comes up and says, I call God. Like, he, <laughs> he's, he's telling the truth here, right? And he says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. It was to spare you that I refrained. Mind you, at the beginning of this verse, to show that it's true, Paul calls God as his witness. He tells them that he wants to spare them. Spare them from what? So we can safely assume the chastisement that would have come. He wants to spare them of that. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy and stand firm in your faith. So Paul didn't come because he wanted to spare them this face-to-face chastisement. So as we see, he writes, this, he writes a letter, and then he's going to come later and try to um, writes the letter addressing the false teachers and how they need to repent, and even the Corinthians church that were moved over towards wrong beliefs, and then he's going to come later. But he doesn't come face to face. The Lord didn't bring it in order to spare them of this chastisement. And then he reminds them that this is a two-party effort here. This is a two-party effort, as it says in verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. He's clearly saying that the reconciliation process that has to happen between him and the Corinthian church is a two-party effort. It's not all Paul, although he's taking the initiative. It's not all the Corinthians that they're going to work together. And he says, we stand for you in your faith and joy. Paul wants them to be strengthened in their faith, but he also readily affirms their faith. Don't miss that, right? Think about what's going on in the whole background here that Paul could easily be thinking, gosh, I don't even know if these people are saved. What does he do? He readily affirms their faith. Not that we lord it over your faith, so he's saying they have it, but we work with you for your joy, for, for making an argument, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul here, Pastor Paul is, is, is coming alongside them, readily even affirming their faith still. You're still a believer. We just need to reconcile. I mean, this is, this is remarkable language that he uses even affirming their faith, despite of them have been 
deceived by false teacher. Pastor Paul cares for them, obviously, super deep. He cares for them. He desires their faith to be strengthened. And he desires for, for them to come back together and have mutual joy in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. That brings us to the third big picture guideline in reconciliation. Whenever you go do reconciliation, it's for the glory of God, number one. It's also possible because of the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. But also reconciliation, it should be on the screen right now. Is it on strengthening each other? There it is. Look at it. All reconciliations should have the goal of strengthening each other's faith and mutual joy in Jesus. Whenever you have the conversation, and it's uncomfortable, okay? Whenever you have it, the goal is reconciliation with each other, each other, but it's also that we strengthen our faith in Jesus with each other and that we all find mutual joy in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to him in verse 24. Not that we will of your faith, but we work with you for your joy. This re- reconciliation is us going to be mutually having a two-party team effort to work with each other for joy in Jesus and you stand firm in your faith, and that you and I would both be strengthened in our faith now. That's the long-term goal of reconciliation. So that's the third. As I said, these aren't details. These are big-picture goals that we need to go for. When I'm doing reconciliation, it must be for the glory of God. It's possible because of the gospel. And I want to, both, both of us on the tail end of this, need to have our joy and our faith grow through this. Now, um, ver- go over to chapter 2. Verse 1 through 4. I want to read it. And as I read it again, um, I want you to notice the high concentration of emotive, aching language that Paul sees here. All right. You're going to see pain, 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 anguish of heart, pain, pain, uh, tears, much affliction, pain. Right. Watch. For I made it up in my mind to not make another painful visit to you. Because uh, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but whom the one I have pained? And And as I wrote... <clears throat> and I wrote as I did, so that when I come, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. For I felt sure all, of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote out of you, I wrote to you out of here it is much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. So you can you can see here pain verse one, pain. Two times in verse 2, pain in verse 3. Verse 4, much affliction, anguish of heart, many tears, pain. So there's a lot of emotive, aching language that Paul is using. So uh, we should first notice that this, this devastated Paul, what was going on. Paul was deeply saddened that this happened. So you can just take a sidestep and just ask yourself, if you have a broken relationship with someone, is this how you feel? Is this even how you feel? Are, if you are uh, a stoic in regard to, that means like no feelings. Uh, that's not good. You should pray to the Lord. Let me feel the brokenness that I'm supposed to feel that this relationship is broken. Um, now, don't miss this. Normally, when we're hurt like Paul, I mean like really deeply cut like Paul was here. Notice the language he uses. He was deeply cut. Normally, we don't. Do what Paul did. Take the initiative to reconcile the relationship. We just say, they did that to me. The offender can come reconcile with me on their timetable. <laughs> I shouldn't have been done that way. We wait for them to come to us. Rarely do we go to them. 
Pastor Paul, like King Jesus, goes to them. And we should learn from that. And he says in verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Paul explains why another visit at the time was not best. Um, as his first visit was so disagreeable, he abandoned his plans for the double visit. And Paul explains that he didn't want to cause another scene. And so he explains his dilemma in verse 2. Verse 2, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain? He explains his dilemma. To come to Corinth might intensify the problems and the pain. To stay away would allow the problems to fester and make reconciliation even more difficult. What, this is a dilemma. Which one do I do? And notice how Paul transitions here, uh, how Pastor Paul wants to seek reconciliation. Um, he remembers that they have brought joy to Paul's life. And he wants that back. So, meaning, if you have a broken relationship with someone, the key is not to go straight to the offense and dwell in the offense, but instead to go further back in the timeline and think about the joy that you had with them and let that joy that you had with them be the impetus or the catalyst to drive you towards saying, Yes, I'm broken now, but man, I used to have joy with them. And so I want to come here and repair this relationship because we had joy and it would be great to have that joy again. Um, You can see that um, as he keeps going. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those um, who should have made me rejoice. Why? Because we've we've rejoiced together before. We've loved each other before. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. Like, We've felt joy together. We've loved each other. And I want that to happen again. So he explains his dilemma. And he explains that he wants that back. So if we're having trouble being motivated to reconcile with someone, we would be better served by striving to remember the joy that they brought us, not the pain that they brought us. And it could persuade us to go to them and seek reconciliation. He says that they are a sort, Paul says that they are a source of joy for me. And the relationship is broken. I have pain now. And it's been multiplied. And so he says, I wrote to you, as it says in verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction. This is the severe letter that he wrote. And notice the goal of the letter. Um, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain. Whenever I wrote a severe letter and I, I told you the things that you were doing wrong, I didn't, my goal was not pain. I know that it might happen, but my goal was not pain, but instead to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. So if someone's doing something wrong, the most loving thing you can do is point out the truth to them. It might sting for a moment, but in the long term, it's what's best for them. And that's what Pastor Paul is trying to help you see. My goal was not to uh, hurt you. I know that truth hurts sometimes. It's got to be said right. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 15, speak the truth in love. I got to speak whenever I speak. I got to speak the truth. Whenever I speak the truth, it's got to be loving. Um, but whenever I do it, uh, the goal should be that you see the abundant love that I have for you. And his love for them is uh, motivated by his actions entirely. As one writer says, Paul is iron-hearted and iron-handed. Or as Calvin says, godly pastors weep within themselves before extending any form of discipline. And that's what Paul is, a spiritual, a good spiritual father that seeks their best interests and responds to their sin against them with sacrificial love, with sacrificial love. And so he comes to them. So like Paul, we should also strive for this in reconciliation. 
um, all the while being resolute to be loving during the entire process. So if in number three, uh, whenever I was talking about the goal of reconciliation should be strengthen and faith, that's the goal of reconciliation. Like, what do I want this reconciliation to bring? I want it to bring mutual strength, mutual joy in Jesus Christ. There's also a goal during reconciliation. There's a goal during reconciliation, which Paul is saying here. That's number four. What's the goal during rec- The big picture reconciliation guideline is this. All reconciliations will bring sort of pain because truth is being spoken. When done correctly, confrontation, reconciliation, the conversations can bring pain. All reconciliations will bring pain of some sort, but remain steadfastly loving during the process. So if number three is telling us the goal of reconciliation, number four tells us the, the goal during reconciliation. During this process, what's supposed to happen? I'm supposed to be steadfastly loving. You're supposed to be steadfastly loving. We are supposed to be steadfastly loving towards each other. And that's what he's saying. I wanted you to see the abundant love that I have for you. So um, let's conclude with the good news of the gospel. And let's remember, um, all that Paul has modeled for us is uh, very Christ-like. So I'm going to conclude uh, by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, and highlighting for us the great reconciliation, the vertical great reconciliation that's happened to us through God. Here's what it says. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a kine katissus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He has been reconciled to God. And it says this, All of this, that's salvation, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so if the great reconciliation has happened, then now then we can go reconcile with others. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What does that mean? Not counting their trespasses against them. Even though we are all wretched trespassers. I'm not counting against you. I put it on counting your sin to you. I'm going to give you or entrust you with the ministry of reconciliation. Unbelievable. The great reconciliation has happened for us. You and I have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. Be in awe of that. Be utterly astounded that God, whom we had sinned against, took all the initiative in Christ and sent him and then therefore reconciled us to him, not counting our trespasses against us. He was the one that was offended and yet he came to us and made the relationship right. So what do you do then? This is what you do. One, reconcile with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Two, glory in the great reconciliation that's been given to us in our salvation through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. Um, We thank you for this unbelievable message of reconciliation. And we pray that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, would extend it forward. It's a difficult thing, but definitely possible through you. So I pray, God, that you would bring it about. Thank you so much for reconciling us in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing now, that our hearts would be uh, 
magnified before you, that we would exult in you and exalt your name because you have reconciled us and given us the ministry of reconciliation. And therefore, we can be reconciled to brothers and sisters. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.